This is The Grant Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershian Hart, and I'm here with Adam Japshow. Hello. Michael Kitch is a historian and a writer, and for many years was the senior reporter for the Laconia Daily Sun, making the happenings of Laconia City Hall as transparent as possible for our readers. Lately, he's been writing for the New Hampshire Business Review, notably covering what might be one of the most important legal questions in the state's history. That question is, how much should the state be contributing to each child's public education? Thank you for joining us, Michael. No, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Michael, your career is one of an example of what I like to think of as the unconventional avenue into journalism. Could you give us a sense of your professional background and how and why you became a journalist? Well, the simple answer is it was a job. (laughs) I, I spent approximately 15 years as a history teacher at the University of London and eventually soured on academic life and returned to the United States and held a number of jobs in Washington over a period of about, I want to say, three or four years. And then one way and another came to New Hampshire and started freelancing for what was then the New Hampshire Times and then joined the New Hampshire Business Review. And from there, worked for, I think, three or four years at New Hampshire Savings Bank Corporation as a corporate communications officer, then went to work for the United States or for the New Hampshire Senate. And I got fired twice. After the second firing, I ended up at the Laconia Daily Sun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How, how did you get involved in this story about this lawsuit? Well, as it happened, when I worked in the Senate, the very day that the second Claremont decision, I was there in the 1990s. So I was working in the Senate when the first Claremont decision came down in 1993, which we can talk about that decision later, but it that was the decision that that required the state to provide an adequate education. And then the second decision that came down in 1997, which held that the property taxes for funding education were unconstitutional. And I worked in the Senate when both of those decisions were dropped on the legislature. So I've been following this now for the past nearly, well, 30 years. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you could bring us back to the, the, you know, to the 20th century and tell us about those initial Claremont cases and, and what sort of outcome generated. Well, there were two decisions. The first decision that the court made in 1993 was based on Part 2, Article 83 of the Constitution, which 
imposed a duty on the state to provide every educable child with an adequate education and to guarantee adequate funding. And that decision effectively created a constitutional right to an adequate education. And four years later, the court found that the property taxes that were the local property taxes were paying for education and ruled that to the extent that property taxes were used to pay for an adequate education, they must be equal in valuation and uniform in rate throughout the state. And that was based on Part 2, Article 80, Part 2, Article 5 of the Constitution. And those were the foundational decisions that the court made. And the state wrestled with that for a number of years and really only addressed it in 2008. And they passed then two statutes, one that defined the content of an adequate education and the other which provided the cost of an adequate education. And how does how did those decisions set the table for the current suit? Well, the number the the statute that defined an adequate education simply enumerated eleven what they called learning areas: math, science, English language, reading, social studies, etc. Pretty conventional stuff and said that the education rules, the minimum standards, would provide the opportunity for an adequate education. So they linked the content to the statute, to the 11 learning areas, and then said that it would be delivered by means of the minimum standards. And that's education rule 306, which is being in the course of being revised as we speak. And then they pass a second statute that essentially pegged the cost of an adequate education, which I believe originally was about $3,500 per student. That was the base adequacy cost. And then there were supplemented by additional costs for students eligible for free and reduced price lunch, learning English language, those things. So that the average the average came out to be about forty five hundred dollars, I think, per student. And that those all came out of what we refer to in shorthand as the, the Claremont suits, correct? That's correct. In twenty nineteen Conval, the Conval School District, brought suit alleging that the adequacy number was insufficient and unconstitutional. And that's how we got to the Conval suit. What was the basis of their argument about it being inadequate and unconstitutional? Their argument was that they listed seven flaws. For example, the state didn't cover the cost of transportation, which was not less than $400 in any district per student. 
they base their cost on teacher ratios of 1 to 25 to 30 when teacher-student ratios were no, nowhere greater than 1 to 17. Teacher benefits, including retirement, health care, et cetera, weren't factored in. School nurses, which are required, were not factored in. Superintendent services were not factored in. Food services, which run about 70000 $70 million a year in costs were only and, and offset by about 30, 37 million in revenues, left a deficit of $33 million, which was borne by the school districts. Nothing, there was no, no money for operating and maintaining school buildings, which average about $1,400 a student. Those were the specific costs that Conval came up with, and they suggested that the state should contribute at least just short of $10,000 per student. The other way to look at this, and perhaps is simpler, is to say that currently the cost of adequacy is $3,786.66 per student. The average cost per student across the state is $19,399.97. Yeah, well, I think that gets to an important element of the argument, if I understand it correctly, which is has to do with equity. And because that difference between what it costs to actually educate a child and what you get from the state, that difference, there are some communities that handle that different that difference in a different way than their neighboring communities. Can you would you be able to explain how this plays out from town to town across the state? Yeah, what happens is that that gap between what the state provides and what the actual costs are is primarily paid for by local property taxes. Approximately 61% of total costs are borne by property tax, local property taxes. Another 10 to 12% are borne by the statewide education property tax, which is simply a surcharge on the local property tax. So in effect, property taxes pay for just short of 75% of the cost of public education. And because property values differ so widely across the state, those local property tax rates vary considerably. Some towns pay four times more than others. It's what the Supreme Court in the Claremont decisions called fiscal mischief. And that violates... I'm sorry, what did they call it? Fiscal mischief. Fiscal mischief. Mischief. It's quite a term, it's quite a term of art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the, the tax rates, some taxpayers pay, you know, $20, $20 a thousand. Others pay, you know, two or three dollars a thousand, depending on the property wealth of the town. Yeah. 
And it results in this sort of upside down situation where many of the poorest school communities in terms of the property value within that community, if they have a low property value, the residents end up paying more for a lower quality education. And the wealthier communities pay relatively less and they have the best schools in the state. Yes. And there are two ways to look at that. In the year 2020, the legislature created a commission to study school funding. And they contracted with a group called the American Institutes for Research, AIR. And AIR produced a a ton of, of data. But the most important point that they made was that not only in the property poor towns do taxpayers pay a disproportionate property tax to fund their schools, but that the students in those schools reach lower levels of achievement than those, than their counterparts, districts with greater property wealth. So in other words, student achievement suffers in the property poor towns. Do these arguments surrounding equity, are these part of the legal arguments from the plaintiffs? In the Conval suit, the Conval suit didn't address the, they they referred in passing to the inequities in property tax, but they didn't actually bring a full-fledged argument that the taxes were unconstitutional. In the, they violate the Constitution because the Constitution requires that the taxes be equal in valuation and uniform in rate throughout the state. That was the Claremont decision. But they didn't really directly confront that issue, nor did they point out that the level of academic achievement in the property-poor towns suffered essentially was was way way below the media of achievement throughout the state that that was the, they didn't raise those issues they simply confined themselves to the cost of adequacy and came up with the number of 10,000 roughly $10,000 per student to correct it you mentioned that Conval brought suit in 2019 what was the decision in that case in that case the judge David Ruoff ruled that the statute that determined the the cost of the adequate education was unconstitutional, but he didn't put a number to what the what the cost should be. The case was appealed by both the state and the Conval School District. It was appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reversed the decision that the funding statute was unconstitutional and essentially said that the facts of the case in their in their words were so vigorously disputed that they could not make a ruling and they remanded the court the, the case back to judge ruoff with the expectation that he would determine a number that he would he was tasked with trying to essentially determine what an adequate education should cost. And is that what brings us up to our current day? 
that's where we stand now, and, and he will issue his decision sometime in June. The trial itself was rather interesting because the state made no attempt to argue that $3,786 was sufficient to fund education. They made they offered no evidence. They called no witnesses. They made no argument that that number was sufficient. Instead, they offered two defenses. The first one was that it's none of the court's business, that the separation of powers places the determination of what is an, an adequate education and what it costs solely with the legislature. That was their one of their defenses. Their second defense was that the schools, and this is, I'll, I'll read from, from their brief, school districts expend significant funds due to the provision of constitutionally unnecessary programs and services on matters of local district choice, local district philosophies, and local district accounting practices. So essentially, just because most districts pay for transportation, that's not a constitutionally required part of education? It's not enumerated in the statute that define an adequate education. Those, the, remember, I, I mentioned those 11 learning areas? There's nothing there about transportation, and there's a disconnect, and it's somewhat complex. But as I said, there's the statute, and there are also the, the minimum standards. And the minimum standards are not costed. There's no direct link between the definition of an adequate education, the content, and the minimum standards by which it's delivered. There's no nexus. There's no rational basis for the cost that the legislature came up with. And that it, it's interesting that one of the questions that the judge asked at the trial was whether when the rules were written and as they are being revised, is any attempt being made to determine what these rules will cost to implement. The other part of the testimony that was interesting was Commissioner Edelblut, he testified for one day, and he basically said that the Department of Education had nothing to do with defining or costing an adequate education. It was solely the preserve or the prerogative of the legislature. He said the department had never undertaken any analysis of what an adequate education consisted of. He was asked, for example, what does the Department of Education do to make sure that those non-public schools are providing an adequate education? Well, public, he answered, public schools are regulated by the state, and they receive approval from the State Board of Education. What does that process of approval entail? I'd, I'm not perfectly familiar with that, so I wouldn't be able to speculate. How frequently do you make sure that schools are providing a constitutionally adequate education? That's part of the program of the Bureau of Accountability. And so they have a program that they use to determine whether or not a school is meeting the requirements. That was all he said. 
Was he called by the plaintiffs or by the defense? He was called uh, by the plaintiffs, I believe. He made no defense. I wonder, do you, do you have a glimmer as to what the what the uh, state's strategy is by not calling a defense? Going back to what I said earlier about the state's defense, the state's defense is essentially legalistic. They're essentially saying that if if school buildings, school building maintenance, transportation, etc., are not specifically enumerated in the statutes that define an adequate education, then the state's not required to pay for them. And then beyond that, what they're also saying is that it's the prerogative of the legislature. An adequate education is what the legislature says it is, and the cost of an adequate education is what the legislature agrees to appropriate. And it's not the court's business. Now, the answer, the answer to that which is interesting, and the court has has said this several times, is that the Constitution provides a constitutional right to an education. And for example, in the in a decision in 2008, after the legislature had dragged its feet since the Claremont decisions, the court said, "We understand the." separation of powers. We respect the authority of the legislature and their role in shaping policy. And then said, deference, however, has its limits. The judiciary has a responsibility to ensure that constitutional rights not be hollowed out. And in the absence of action by other branches, a judicial remedy is not only appropriate, but essential. And so now we're trying, to, we're waiting to find out which, uh, which argument sways the judge. Well, the fact of the matter is that, that whatever Judge Ruoff may decide in, in the Conval case, it will be appealed. And the decision will, will rest with the Supreme Court. And the question then is whether the, whether the Supreme Court stands by the Claremont decisions and how firmly it stands by those decisions. Now, you mentioned when we were talking on the phone to set up this podcast recording that there was also another suit involving public education in the state. I think the RAND suit, is that right? Yes, it's it's called the RAND suit. It's brought by Andrew Valinsky and John Tobin and Natalie Laflamme on behalf of five property taxpayers. And Valinsky and Tobin were both party to the Claremont cases. They, they litigated uh, both of those. Natalie Laflamme is a young woman who was in second grade when the Claremont decisions came down at Berlin High School. Uh, she graduated as valedictorian went to Georgetown University and Duke Law School and has now joined with Valinsky and Tobin in pursuing the RAND case. The The RAND case is different in the sense that the primary thrust of the case is on behalf of property taxpayers in districts that are paying disproportionate property tax. And the, the challenge there is to the variation in local property taxes. However, the link between or the common ground between Conval and Rand is the 
cost of adequacy. So going back to something we, we discussed earlier, if local property taxpayers are paying approximately 60% of the cost of education, then those and those tax rates vary from one place to another, it's because the cost of the state is not paying its share. In other words, the cost of adequacy is too low. So the RAND suit also makes the case that the adequacy number of approximately $4,000, a little less than that, it means that the burden is passed to local property taxes, which vary in rate throughout the state and are therefore unconstitutional. Am, am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, no, you are. I guess um, if the plaintiffs they're also, have... They're, I'm sorry, they're also challenging the um, constitutionality of the statewide education property tax as well. If all these, if the plaintiffs had their way and the judges uh, decided in their favor, what what effect would there be on the on the landscape? Would would our schools look different? I think some of our schools would look very different. For example, just to take one interesting index, what I find interesting, I think Concord High School offers about fourteen advanced placement courses. I could be wrong, but it's it's a high number. And that's not uncommon among wealthy districts like Oyster River, Hanover. Those, those are the ones that jump out to you. When Natalie Laflamme was in Berlin High School, there were two AP courses. I don't know what the situation is right now, but for example, I know Pittsfield struggled to offer a foreign language. Now, I don't know how you define an adequate education. I wouldn't pretend to know that, but I would have thought that one criteria might be to prepare a high school student for further education. And if if a school is unable to offer options for advanced placement courses and things like that, their graduates are not going to find themselves able to compete with kids from schools with richer offerings. Just take one example. So I, I think depending on what the courts do, it, it would have a dramatic impact. And particularly on, on, on Manchester, which is the lar- by far the largest school district in the state. And in, in fact, the AIR report suggested that if you solved the problem in Manchester, you, you'd, you'd go a long way towards solving the problem across the state just because of the sheer number of students they have. All right. Well, Michael, could you give us a sense of what you're working on now or what sorts of stories people might want to keep a, a lookout for that you're working on? I'm following this. I've got 30, 30 years invested in it. All <laughs> I hope I live long enough to see it to a conclusion. Okay. Me too. But other, otherwise, the only other thing I've got on the horizon is a visit to the Manchester Technical College School where the, ki- the kids are building an airplane. Okay. Well, that sounds like a refreshing uh, alternative to 
this court case? Yeah, yeah. Uh, trials. Uh, this trial was very difficult to cover because so much of the testimony was very. The, the state, particularly, simply questioned business administrators and superintendents about their expenses. That was m- much of the testimony was very detailed examination of school budgets and trying to essentially expose these unnecessary expenses. The state at one point did allow that heat and light were generally important. (laughs) That's generous of them. Yeah. Let's end with some advice for our listeners. You've been a journalist here in New Hampshire for a very long time and in other places as well. What advice would you offer somebody who's interested in starting their career in journalism? Oh, boy. Get a good education. That's the first thing. A, A broad education, obviously reading and writing skills, but above all, critical thinking skills and the ability to sort the wheat from the chaff and and follow sometimes complex arguments. I think that, and, and in general, a liberal arts education, I think, is, is the, probably the, the best background for someone interested in, in a career in journalism. I think the people on this side of the microphone tend to agree with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think of journalism as a profession. I mean, I, I think of it as a, as a career, but I, it, it's, it's not like the law or medicine or anything like that. It's really for someone with, with a very open mind and a lot of curiosity and the skills to pursue those avenues. And to write clearly and concisely and accurately for others. I never thought of being a journalist until I got tired of academics. And and you also have to be, you also have to be able to get by on little sleep and daily deadlines. Has <laughs> anyone who ever worked at the Daily Sun knows? <laughs> Especially in New Hampshire. I mean, all the meetings are at night, you know, you can't cover stuff in, in the daytime and that makes it difficult. So I don't have, I, I'm very reluctant to offer anybody advice on a career. <laughs> well, Michael, we, we appreciate your time today and, and your excellent coverage of this, as we said, uh, one of the most important uh, legal questions in our state's history. It's certainly one of the longest. Yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. All right. Well, thank you for having me. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlon Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.